know about you, but there's something that's just so right about singing those songs. It just makes, I don't know what's, you know, whatever's out there, like suddenly that man on that piano singing those songs give me just a moment that, hey, it's going to be okay in this world, all right? For you guys that are helping, absolutely. You guys that are helping with music, Lynn, um, Claire, Aiden, Robert, thank you guys so much. I mean, if you think about some of the challenges that we've had as a church, just like with people leading us in song, it's like, who can stop us, all right? Come on. Amazing. Thank you. Wonderful job, guys. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're at this morning. We're in verses one through five. You will be greatly helped as I preach if you have a copy of God's word with you open in front of you on your phone and a Bible, whatever. The words won't be up there. Um, you'll, you'll be better if you're looking at them in your hands, okay? This passage this morning is wonderful. It's a beautiful passage. Um, for me, it has been just a, such a, a wonderful, just a timely message for me just this week in preparing it. And I really hope that this message speaks to you, that this passage specifically speaks to you over the next couple of minutes. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in as we spend time looking at it. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning, Lord. We thank you, Lord, just for the, the, um, the reality that this word is eternal and that is true, Father. And our ask this morning is, is really our ask every time that we open it, Lord, that you would take your word, that you would write it on our hearts, Lord, and that you would use this word this morning to shape us and to form us as a people, to, to comfort us and encourage us, Lord, as we live our life. We need it. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I just pray that you would use it this morning now. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever experienced the promise of comfort that did not deliver? Promise, comfort, promised, not delivered. A couple years ago, my wife and I were looking for a couch, and I don't know about you, but anytime you buy furniture, it's, it's hard to to give it a genuine test of comfort and maintain your dignity in the store. I don't know if you can relate to that. Like you're limited in what you can do, right? To really see, is this really comfortable? Okay. Maybe some of you don't mind about losing dignity as you test out a couch. Maybe I need to grow in that area. Either way, we tested it the best that we could in the store. Brought it home for me. The real, you know, natural way is this couch going to be comfortable is just at some point passing out on the couch, usually after about five minutes of watching a movie, you know, and then can I sleep all the way through the night? If I get woken up at like two in the morning and I'm like in pain and I'm like folded up, it's not passing the test, right? Well, this couch was disappointing to say the least, right? With it, the first night of falling asleep on it, you know, it just my neck is in a kink. My body is just completely uncomfortable. It did not deliver on its promise. It was disappointing. And I don't know if you can relate. Maybe there's something in your life, maybe something trivial like buying a couch or a pair of shoes or staying at a hotel that's called the Comfort Inn 
and it's anything but. I don't know. But maybe, is there something in your life that you can relate to where comfort has been promised but not delivered? Maybe it's something more significant, more meaningful, like a career, like a location, a place that you're living. Maybe it's a relationship, some place that you have sought comfort but not found it. The wonderful news about Isaiah 40, as the word of the Lord comes to us this morning, it comes to us and it makes a promise that God will deliver on, that God will be faithful to. And it is simply the promise of comfort and God won't disappoint. He will not disappoint. Now, the reality of disappointment is something that every single one of us in some way or another can identify with. We have been disappointed at some point in our life. Well, the God of this book is a God who does not disappoint. Chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah is really a turning point in this book. Verses, sorry, chapters 1 through 39 were a message of confrontation by God to his people. A message of confrontation. The prophet spoke to the people of Judah, and his message was primarily that of warning and of judgment. Their sins would bring God's judgment. Their rebellion, their corruption and idolatry would come at a cost to them. God would use the great empires of the world around them as a means to bring about and execute this judgment. And to make it worse for these people, they are constantly ignoring Isaiah's warning. Warning after warning after warning is falling on what he characterizes in chapter 6, dull hearts, heavy ears, and blind eyes. God's people are ignoring Isaiah's warning. Chapter 40 through 55, the book changes considerably. The, the message turns from a message of confrontation to a message primarily of comfort. This is a part of Isaiah where, where Isaiah looks into the future. This is a unique book, and it's caused many scholars to wonder what is going on. Are there multiple authors? What is happening? What is happening in Isaiah 40 is that his glance changes and he gazes into the future and is writing to Jews who have experienced at a future time and a future place, the judgment of God. Their home, their nation would be crushed. We know as history would fold out, would unfold, would be crushed by the nation of Babylon and they would be carried off into Babylonian exile. This would leave them, no doubt, feeling disappointed, defeated, and dislocated. But what makes it even more difficult to deal with is knowing that this judgment was brought about because of their sins by their God. Their God himself was the one who would cause this judgment to happen. So it wasn't their relationship simply with their home, Jerusalem, that was fractured, but also a relationship with their God that was fractured. They could find themselves, they would find themselves in a place where they would be asking, will things ever be as they once were? Will things ever be made right and be as they should be? 
They would be tempted to look at their circumstances. Maybe you can relate to this this morning to evaluate their circumstances around them, consider all that they have lost and come to the conclusion that God was no longer with them, that God no longer cared about them, that God wanted nothing to do with them. Looking at their conditions, looking at their circumstances, that God was just done. He abandoned them. That was the temptation for them. I wonder if you can relate to that this morning. Can you relate? We are often, I don't know about you, but I know I am, often tempted to measure God's faithfulness and his kindness to me simply by looking around and evaluating my circumstances. For many of us, just this past year, may present a temptation to conclude that God has forgotten us, that God is done with us. The challenges that we have faced as a country, as a church, that, that God is just no longer here. Well, Isaiah 40 is exactly the word that you need to hear this morning if you're tempted towards the same conclusion. Isaiah 40 keeps us from concluding that God has abandoned us. See, you cannot read Isaiah 40 and walk away thinking that God has forgotten us or deserted us. In fact, as we read Isaiah 40, what comes leaping off of the pages is that actually it is when we are looking our worst that God delivers his most. It's an amazing, amazing passage. Two things we're going to look at this morning. Verse and verses one through two, we're going to discover the promise of comfort. The promise of comfort. Everybody say comfort on three. One, two, three. Oh, voices coming from there just are so refreshing to me. Comfort. Oh, you're going to hear me say that word a lot today. First point, verses one to two, the promise of comfort. Second point, verses three to five, the person of comfort. So first, the promise of comfort. This is a moment where God's people have endured essentially all they can bear. The consequences of their sin do not exist as they're reading these words, do not exist as some future threat, but reflects their living reality, their present moment. They, they've been brought to the very end of themselves. And it is in this moment where God speaks to them and his message, the message, the central message of Isaiah 40 can be summed up with that simple word, comfort, comfort. To those who are broken in their sin, exhausted and in need of rest, God's word comes to you this morning and his word is that one word, comfort, comfort. The first two words of the chapter are repeated in dramatic fashion. Comfort, comfort. By comfort, the image that, that is suggested, that is implied here, that is meant here, is not the image, as maybe many of us have conjured up in our mind right now, of us snuggled up in our fam favorite jammies next to a warm, toasty fire sipping hot cocoa. Okay, Not the image that we should have in mind. Give you a different image. This week I was at work um, a little longer than normal. I came home a little later than usual. I went into the kitchen, you know, did the set stuff down, went in the kitchen where I found my wife, and we were talking for a few minutes. And after talking for a few minutes, 
uh, Noelle, our four-year-old, I looked down and she was standing at my feet. Now, if you've been around Noelle, she is just a, a ton of life that is packed in the little four-year-old body. Okay, lots of excitement and energy. And she's just standing there looking up at me. Uh, kind of gave me a pause for a minute. And I looked down, I said, what's up, sweetie? Or something to that effect. I wasn't taking notes as this was happening. So I don't know exactly what I said. Okay, I do know what she said because it struck me. And I, I, I just, I loved it. What she said to me is, Will you pick me up, Papa? She had her arms reached up like this, extended up towards me. She said, will you pick me up, Papa? I said, like whatever else was going on suddenly didn't matter anymore, okay? What did matter was that I was going to bend down and pick her up. And as I picked her up, I put her in my arms. She threw her arms around my neck, and she rested her head on my shoulder. And I just sat there and held her like this and just kind of rocked. Does not normally happen. Usually with that one, you have to fight for those cuddles, all right? She walked into this one. She was exhausted. Natalie had taken her, Liana, to the park. They ran around. They spent time running around all throughout the day, burning energy. She was end of the day. She was tired. She was in need of comfort, the kind of comfort that she could throw herself into, just completely collapse, right, in the security and the strength of somebody's arms who would hold her. That's the image of comfort that God is speaking to you this morning. That's the image of comfort that God is offering you this morning. That's a picture of what God is pronouncing to broken and tired people who are longing for home. Comfort. This kindness from the Lord is reinforced and explained in several ways as you read throughout the chapter. It says, comfort Comfort, look at that first verse. My people says your God. Comfort, comfort, my people says your God. God is clear. These words are intended, he says, for who? My people. And they are spoken by whom? Your God. This tone is no longer the scornful, accusatory tone that we read in Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah is originally commissioned, when God's tone says this, go and say to this people, tone is different. They are now his people. He identifies with them as his people. This language ultimately is the language of a covenant. It's the language of a covenant. My people says your God. Israel's sins were serious and they brought about God's punishment and God's discipline. This is a people who are living the judgment of God. Yet they should not fear that God will forget his promises to their ancestors because, well, he won't. He is a faithful God who keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. You are still my people. Yes, life is hard. Yes, you are living under my judgment. Why? Because of your sins. But you're still my people. I'm still your God. No matter how far you've fallen, guess what? You're still mine. Next he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This is fantastic. I underlined it twice in my Bible. The word Jerusalem. What an amazing statement. God calls them Jerusalem. Literally, speak tenderly to the heart. Some of your versions may even include the word heart. To the heart of Jerusalem. To speak to someone's heart is to speak a word of encouragement, a word of affection. 
which is designed to move someone who's been paralyzed by their circumstances of life and to take heart and to believe and to trust. This is nothing but kindness from the Lord. You can be sure of that. Who is he speaking tenderly to? Speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. Where are these people? As he looks ahead, where are they when they hear these words? They're not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. But what does he call them? He calls them Jerusalem. Even when they're far away in exile, God still calls them Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is no small thing. God is still identifying with his people. Their God has not cast them off and forgotten about them. He still wants to be associated with them, identified with them. Sometimes, and you know, maybe you've heard a, a family, or maybe, I wouldn't imagine any of you would do something like this, but maybe you've seen parents with kids, and the, the, the child makes a foolish choice. No kids in here would do that. Um, and one parent looks at the other and says, that's you, right? That's your child. I don't, you know what I'm saying? That is not, I don't know where he got that. That's on you, right? It's an attempt to recognize some foolish behavior and distance yourself from it, right? Well, guess who doesn't do that? God. Guess who's not ashamed of you? God. He doesn't distance himself, disassociate. Is that a word? Yes, him from you. He identifies as our God. We are his people. He doesn't do that. When you act foolish and and find yourself sort of fumbling your way through life, God is not ashamed of you. When we don't act like the people of God, he doesn't keep us at a distance and, and, and throw us off and ignore us. He still identifies with us. And as a result, we have every reason to believe in his love, every re- reason to, to receive and to trust in him. He goes on, her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a promise. No more warfare. A time of peace, God says, is on the horizon. God will supply abundantly for his people and and he will atone for the sins in in a double portion, more than what is needed. This is God's final purpose for them. Double, he says, for their sins. Do we sin? Do you sin? You bet. Do we deserve punishment for those sins? Absolutely. See Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. God exposes in those chapters the wicked corruptions, the failures of his people. He judges and disciplines his people because of their sins. But in chapter 40, we learn that there is an end to the disciplines of God. In fact, it is our very sin that evokes the tender, kind mercies of God himself. Your failure You at your very worst. That is precisely the the ground that God's renewing comfort is most profoundly understood. As a result, we are not a people who just limp our way through life, left like a wounded dog licking our wounds. Not the people of God. God standing there at a distance, just shaking his head. No, that's not the picture. We have a God 
who speaks to us an amazing promise, and it's one of comfort. Next question is how? Where does this comfort come from? Yes, we are a people that belong to God. Yes, we can have this promise of comfort, but how will God deliver this comfort? Well, verses three through five show us that there's actually a person of comfort and it's God himself. The source of their comfort is God. Our opportunity to have and experience real, true comfort is nothing to do with our ability, your ability to sort of pull yourself together, right? Like as you survey the mess of your life and think, okay, there's gonna, it's gonna be a better day. What it doesn't look like is you reaching out and try to getting a hand and a hold on everything in your life and kind of reining it in and just pulling it together on your own strength. That's not how it happens. This is not a, a self-improvement plan or some wonderful secret life hack that you get to discover. This is solely the work of God, the activity of the Lord himself. Look at verse three. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Folks, God is coming to his people. The king is on his way. Israel's only hope is God breaking into human history, invading their reality, bringing to them comfort right here and right now and a hope for a better future. That's how it comes. It comes with God. The image here is of God coming from a distant land out somewhere in the wilderness, maybe the Mount Sinai, out of, out of the wilderness to rescue his people. The people are unable to help themselves. They are utterly dependent on someone else to get them out of the mess. And God is the savior they need. The reason God's people disillusioned, depleted in a distant land can take comfort is because Help is on its way, and its help, its name is God. God's coming. So the king's coming. Can he be stopped? Can anybody slow him down? Is there an obstacle that can stand in his way from accomplishing his purposes in you? What hope and promise we read? Is there anything that can slow him down or stop him? Some force, maybe external out there that can stop him and keep him at bay. Maybe, maybe a mess inside of you that is so filthy, so stenchy that God wants nothing to do with it. Can some obstacle keep him from you once he set his face to you? Isaiah's answer is poetically and emphatically no. He's coming to save you and he can't be stopped. So what it says in verse four, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. It's a picture of the highway that God is taking to come to you. I don't know if you've ever driven out west, but if we've taken several road trips out west, and as we think about our drive out west, you know, there are some factors that you have to take in mind if you want to drive safely. Some states that you have to really be alert. I mean, you should be alert when you're driving, period. Okay. However, there are some states that provide that present some challenges that are, you know, for your, your typical Iowa driver, maybe a little uncomfortable, if you will. 
um, states where there's like big hills and mountains and you have to make sure your brakes are in good condition if you're going to be going down these hills, like, you know, switchbacks and things like that. And if you're driving in you know, the middle of the summer and there's snow up in the mountains, you have to be, make sure you have good tires. I mean, there's some, some challenges the further out there you get. You know which state is not challenging, depending on how you look at it to drive through? Nebraska. Not a challenge, all right? It's a, it's a one, and no offense if you're here, I absolutely love, well, we won't go that far. I'm just kidding, all right? Nebraska is a wonderful state to drive through. I mean, it doesn't provide the scenery, but it is safe. It is a straight shot. It is level. There are like stops along the way where you don't have to like fill up and hope that you can make it to the next gas station. You know what I mean? It is a safe, level drive. No obstacles. That's what it's going to be like for the Lord when he makes his way to his people. Nothing standing in his way. Nothing can stop him. This is a prophecy right here. Are you familiar with this? Is in the, in the Gospels. It's a prophecy that's ascribed in every Gospel to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. John came to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John is not calling a group of civil engineers together to alter the physical topography of the ancient Near East. Not what he's doing. Calling for the leveling of hills and the filling up of the valleys. It's not what's going on here. Rather... He fulfilled this by proclaiming a simple message. His message, repent, repent of your sins and declaring Jesus as the Lamb of God, the arrival of the King who takes away the sins of the world. That was his message. John leveled the mountains by blasting away at the self-righteous hypocrisy of the religious elite who had zero need for a savior. Why? Because they had it figured out. Everything was going their way. John threw a grenade and blew that up. He rose the valleys by giving hope to the wretched and the rejected who felt that salvation was impossible and inaccessible for them. John came, the message of the gospel, and said, actually... The gospel disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. That was John's message. That is the message of the gospel. That's what Christmas is all about. There's no obstacle that he can't overcome. There's no barrier that can stand in his way. He'll tear down. He is coming. This is why Paul can can say rightfully in Romans chapter eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or COVID-19 or whatever mess we're living in, can it separate you from the love of God? Paul says, no. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what's so amazing about our God. Nothing can stop him. God has made up his mind. He can't be stopped from loving you, from welcoming you into his comforting embrace. He will not be stopped. God will accomplish his purposes. You can take that to the bank. The direct result of God's coming is, we find out in verse five, the revelation of his glory. 
Look at verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The revealing of God's glory is one of the primary themes of the book of Isaiah. Some 37 references throughout the book to the revelation. They speak to the revelation of God's glory. Try as we might to reduce and minimize his glory, God is resolved to magnify himself before our very eyes. And part of what our problem is as human beings is minimizing his glory, right? Reducing it, containing it, not recognizing the full splendor and majesty and magnitude of it. Think of going to the Grand Canyon. If you've been to there, you, you know, you can see pictures of the Grand Canyon. And then when you stand staring at the Grand Canyon, you just, you can't even take, you don't have words to articulate what you're staring at. It is so massive, so massive. You can leave, come back in a couple of years, and even your memory is insufficient to contain how big the canyon is. Same as can be said of God. As we grow as followers of Jesus, we are growing in our understanding of how big and how majestic God is. We are beholding his glory. And his commitment to do this, to reveal the fullness of his glory, his faithfulness to this promise is what Christmas is all about. That's what it is. That's what he's doing. God himself becomes visible to us, bringing his presence in the form of a little baby to us. Living, this baby living among us. John 14, in John chapter 1, verse 14, John says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The display of God's glory is nowhere more obvious to us than in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God's glory revealed in flesh for you and for me to see. In Christ, we see all the attributes of God radiant, radiantly displayed. His love, his mercy, his justice, his patience, on and on and on. Right here in Isaiah 40, we discover the very centerpiece of this gospel. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. Now, an important note, as the uh, prophets write, sometimes it can be hard to distinguish what, what are they talking about, Right? We know that eventually that uh, Israel would be, now remember, he's writing to, to, to God's people from the past. They're going to be in Babylon. He's looking ahead. He's seeing what's coming their way. They're not there yet. They're going to read these words while they're there, likely. He, he knows the judgment. He also knows that they're going to be coming back to Jerusalem. We see that in Nehemiah. He comes back and builds the city, builds it back up, right? We see God faithful, as the prophets are writing, it's often described like they're writing toward, they're looking towards a mountain range, 
okay? And as they look off in the distance, they see these peaks, these different mountains. And what they can't see is they can't rightfully distinguish the distance from one mountain to the next, right? So they can look across and they can see the mountain range. The first peak, you know, is, is, uh, is, is God's deliverance of his people. They go back to Jerusalem. And there's a valley maybe that separates the next peak, which would be Jesus Christ's birth comes and they see the blessing that comes with that and God's comfort that is offered, his glory revealed in Jesus. And then, and then often the future past that even is, is another peak. You know what that peak is? It's a peak of when Christ returns. We're living in the valley between the first one and second one, right? We live on the side of history, redemptive history, where we can look back and we can see God's glory revealed through Jesus Christ. But then we have the distinct privilege of being able to turn around and look in the future and see a time when Jesus will come again. And when, God, when Jesus comes again, look, you see both of these things reflected in verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, Jesus and his birth. And all flesh shall see it together, Jesus and his second coming. There's going to be a day when you will lay your eyes on Jesus and nobody will be able to deny who he is. It will see him in his splendor and his glory, full of his majesty. All flesh will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Folks, that's our great hope. That is the source. I mean, we live in this world where we receive this wonderful gift of promise and comfort that has come and been delivered through Jesus. And we are in Christ. Jesus is who our identity is. It's Christ. And then we get to look at, but yet we're still in this world where it's, it's hard to live, where there's pain, where there's misery, where there's challenges, there's bumps along the road. But we also get to look ahead to a day when when those bumps will be laid low, things will be as they ought. That's our great hope. So the question is, what do we do about it? First of all, throw yourself in the arms of Jesus and never look back. If you're here this morning and you have never done that, what, what better opportunity Christ is standing before you with his arms wide open. And all you have to do, all you have to do is fling yourself into his arms and receive his embrace. Receive from him what you have been working your whole life to achieve for yourself, recognizing that you can't do it. Just fling yourself in his arms. Remember, once you're in Jesus's arms, you are not ultimately defined by your circumstances. You're ultimately defined by your Jesus. And there's no better place to be. Number two, what are we supposed to do? I'll just ask you a simple question. I think Pastor Wade asked it this, this question last week, but I want you to consider where are you tempted to look for comfort outside of Christ? All of us. All of us, regardless of what your position is in Christ, or I mean, we, we all have a temptation to seek what only Christ can deliver, to seek comfort in places outside of Jesus. Maybe it's relationships or, or the hope of relationships. Maybe it's careers or the hope of careers. Maybe it's a bank account or the hope of like an amount in the bank account. What is it that is your sort of, what's out there that you, are, you find yourself grasping for? Thinking that it will deliver comfort. What is it? 
And then a close next application would be tell somebody about it, whether it's a spouse. Identify. Once you put your thumb on that thing in your life that you think is tempting you to find comfort in ways that only Christ can offer, once you've identified that, share that with somebody. It could be in a community group, a question to ask in the community group. What is it for you that you're tempted to find comfort in? It could be with a spouse. It could be with a parent. It could be with a friend or a roommate. Tell somebody. Third thing and final application is proclaim this comfort. I want to challenge each of you to think this week of how you can proclaim this comfort. This comfort is spoken. If you read through the chapter of 40 of Isaiah, you will see 11 times words related to speech. We saw a few in our verse. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. The point is clear. This good news is too good not to share. The good news of the gospel must be spoken. It must be announced. It must be proclaimed. That's how good it is. That's how we receive it. And that's how we deliver it. It just doesn't come to us and we just keep it contained and and held closely to us. Yes, we receive the best blessings of it, but you know what else we do? We turn around and we extend those to whoever God puts in our way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we, if I had my Bible open to Second Corinthians, I'd be underlining that so that he's a God of comfort. He comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, we serve and worship the God of comfort. And as a result, because of what he has done and extended to us, we are by definition a people of comfort. And he's given us this really amazing task of dispensing that comfort to those around us, to people in our family, in our neighborhood, in our community who are hurting who who are defining themselves right now by their circumstances and concluding that there's no hope. Well, guess what? God drops that person right in your path. And you have the amazing opportunity to proclaim comfort to them. That's awesome. That's awesome. God did not extend himself to us so that we would keep him from others. Rather, he extended himself, he came to us, and he sends us out to deliver to others what we have received. What an awesome task. Church, I hope this week, I have no idea what lies ahead of us. No idea what lies ahead of you in the next couple of days. But what I do know is that whatever it is, God says to you, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, says these words, comfort, comfort, my people. Let's pray. 
Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have again to look at your word. Lord, to um, be challenged by your word, to be reminded of your truth and your character, Father. Um, Lord, and I, I just thank you for just the reality that you are a God of comfort. And in these uh, days that are likely for many of us better characterized as uncomfortable, Lord, you are a God who is steady, who's unshakable, unchanging, and your comfort is supernatural and far, far exceeds the discomfort of this world. So we thank you for that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.